Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 269, The Western Front. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. This week, members are listening to a Shop Talk episode where co-producer Z and I discuss the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the new discovery about Cheddar Man, stuff about Athelflaed, and we also review the new Amazon show, Britannia. And you can get instant access to that episode and all the other members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Chantal, Jane, and Mary for signing up already. Wessex and Mercia have had a busy decade. Both kingdoms have militarized their borders, fought off invasion forces, and even took the offensive and marched into neighboring kingdoms. And even though the Chronicle is mysteriously tight-lipped on all these fights, it's clear that there was way more than just construction work that was going on at all of these burrs. There were battles being waged. Battles that largely went unrecorded for some reason, but battles nonetheless. And we know this because other sources from this time tell us that real blood, sweat, and tears were going into the acquisition and defense of these border shires. These last few years have seen an unprecedented degree of aggression coming out of the Anglo-Saxon territories of the south. Wessex has charged into Essex and claimed large swaths of territory there. Mercia has fortified all along its border with the Danish-controlled territories. And as Athelflaed was doing her building spree along the edge of the five boroughs, she was gobbling up the adjacent lands. Furthermore, King Edward and the army of Wessex have been quite busy as well. They marched right up to Northampton and gained the fealty of the surrounding lands and constructed burrs there. So all of a sudden, the borough of Leicester, which had a series of allied shires and buffer regions between it and the Mercians, was getting all too close to its frontier with the Anglo-Saxons. Its list of southern allies were growing thin. And that was a problem because Mercia had recently demonstrated in Lindsay that they weren't averse to bringing war to their neighbors. But, once again, much of this story is cloaked as a story of construction. And there's no obvious reason for why this turn in the record happens. But Z and I do discuss several theories that we've been playing around with in the most recent shop talk on the members feed. But officially, we really don't know why they're doing this. What we do know is that this stabby construction spree that the southern Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were undertaking wasn't over. Not by a long shot. In 915, shortly after she was done building in Warwick, Athelflaed gathered her army and marched upon Cherbury. Now, Cherbury lies to the southwest of Shrewsbury, and more importantly, it's right on the edge of the modern Welsh-English border. And there, she constructed a burr. Afterwards, she marched with her army to Wearbrig, which isn't precisely identified, but based upon place name evidence, is thought to have been Westbury in Shropshire. And that was only about 19 miles to the north of that first burr she constructed at Cherbury. And then finally, after those two burrs, she and her army marched about 50-odd miles north to the River Mersey, where they constructed another burr, this one at Runcorn. Now that's all in a single year. So we're talking about a lot of building that was being carried out with Athelflaed and, quote, all the Mercians, end quote. And it's taking place all along the border between Mercia and Wales, with two burrs appearing to be constructed within about a dozen miles of each other right along the border of the Welsh kingdom of Powys. 
So why do that? I mean, if you remember, Mercy and Wales have been forging a closer alliance during the time of Athelred, and it seems like Athelflaed have been quite interested in maintaining that arrangement. In fact, Athelred and Athelflaed were quite successful in that endeavor, because in later records, we see Welsh kingdoms acting under the Mercian, not the West Saxon, umbrella. But that raises the question, why march with the full army to the border of Poes, and then build multiple burrs there? And why build another burr on the border of Gwyneth? Basically, why does it suddenly appear like Athelflaed is at war with parts of Wales, or at least preparing for war, when it seems like from the record they should be serving under her? Well, like all the other records of this period, what was happening in Wales is murky, but we can catch glimpses of the story from the Welsh Annals, as well as the Irish Annals, and a small handful of other sources. And our first hint about this whole situation actually focuses on an event that happened a few years prior. In 913, a wave of Danish attacks were launched in Ireland. And in response, the Norse settlement of Dublin was re-established. Though it was established on a new site, so it was only sort of re-established. Either there were some holdouts in the original Dublin, or the Norse no longer wanted that particular piece of land anymore for whatever reason. But whatever the case, with that new base of operations for Viking activity, we see a corresponding increase in raiding. Furthermore, this new Dublin appears to have been closely aligned with the growing kingdom of Jorvik. And that's all bad news for Mercia, Wessex, and Wales. And as a sign of the things to come, on the same year that Dublin was re-established, quote, the heathens routed the crews of a fleet of Ulstermen on the coast of England, end quote. So this is essentially the first symptom of the Welsh and the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms coming down with a really bad case of Vikings. Because what that entry is telling us is that the attempts of the Northern Irish to control naval operations in the Irish Sea were failing. And shortly after that, we see a dramatic expansion of Norse activity in the Irish Channel. And not just raiding, we're seeing them outright seizing territory. So Athelflaed's building projects, which were undertaken a few years after that new front in the war opened up, kind of gives the impression that she might have been trying to shore up her defenses. I mean, Chester and Runcorn could slow down any advancing armies coming out of Jorvik, and they could also intercept any fleets coming across the Irish Sea and up the River Mersey. Furthermore, TM Charles Edwards suggests that this might have resulted in the border between Jorvik and Mercia being moved from the Mersey all the way up to the Ribble, which was about 45 miles to the north. So in addition to fortifying her northern border, Athelflaed might have also been grabbing significant portions of land from the Danish-occupied territories. Now as for Cherbury and Weirdbrig, well, the reason for those burrs is a little bit less obvious. Perhaps she intended to create a defensive structure just in case the Welsh kingdom started to fall to the Danes. I'm not sure. But something else happened at about the same time that Athelflaed started marching around with her army and building fortresses on the western border. And this other thing suggests that maybe Athelflaed had something else in mind when she started building. Do you remember King Anarod ap Rodri? He was the son of Rodri the Great, the guy who brought large portions of Wales under his and his brother's control. You know, the guy who allied with Jorvik but ended up switching sides and joining Alfred's coalition. Well, at about this same point in history, King Anarod died, and his son Idwal took the throne. But here's where it gets a little bit messy for us. See, he ruled over Gwyneth, 
and he had control over Poas for a period, but it's not entirely clear who was ruling over Poas during this period. And it's actually a much bigger question than I wish it was. Some scholars argue that Anarod granted Poas to his brother Murfin, and that Poas was now being ruled by Murfin's son, Llewellyn, which would have been Idwald's cousin. But that isn't a universal opinion among scholars. Honestly, trying to answer the question of who exactly was ruling Poas during these crucial years has taken up much more of my time than I'd like to admit, and in the end, I still don't know the answer. And the reason why I've been spending so much time on this is because two of the three burrs were right on the border of Poas. So knowing the state of politics in that kingdom would really help, but this uncertainty might be hinting at the answer that I already need which is there's another possibility for why Athelflaed was building on the border of Poas. Namely, instability within Poas. King Anarod ap Rodri was dead. And if Athelflaed was uncertain of the state of politics within Poas, or if Poas was looking like it might be about to break from Gwyneth, or maybe just outright break from the Mercian umbrella in general, well, plopping down a couple burrs on the border could certainly send a message to the people of Poas. And if Poas was openly fighting against Mercia during this period, which isn't out of the question since Mercia did look like it was a bit overstretched and that would be a good time to try and assert independence. Well, if that was happening, Athelflaed probably had all the reason she needed to gather up all the Mercians and march to the border. Furthermore, looking at a map, you can see that the burrs that Athelflaed built are currently laying on the English side of the modern Welsh-English border. And it's natural to assume that that was the same border that Athelflaed was dealing with and that she was building on the Mercian side as a defensive measure. And that is possible. Athelflaed might have been looking to cement Mercia's stake. But it's also possible that she was looking to expand the edges of her border during a period of political uncertainty within Wales. Much like the Burrs in Runcorn and elsewhere, these fortresses had the potential to move borders. They weren't just defensive structures. And when those borders moved, it looks like they didn't move just a few miles. That burr at Runcorn may have pushed the border back as much as 45 miles. That's more than a full day's march of territory acquired. And if you wanted to nab that much land on the western border, having a couple burrs within a dozen or so miles of each other might have been the way to do that. It's even possible that she was making an overt play to retain the dominant position and the balance of power between Wales and Mercia. And if that was the case, then what we're seeing here is a physical demonstration of the sort of hell that Poas would invite upon themselves if they decided to strike out on their own. Basically a physical threat. Now my personal read on this, based on what's about to come, is that war was already sparking up between the Welsh kingdoms and Mercia. And the burrs on the border of Poas reflected either outright hostilities between Mercia and Poas, or Athelflaed's attempt at preventing hostility with Poas because she didn't want all of the kingdoms fighting against her. But the truth is, I don't have any firm answers for you on why she was building on the border of Poas, nor do I have any firm answers for why she did it with her big-ass army. These particular burrs remain a mystery, but I think regardless of the particulars, we can be fairly sure that some real Game of Thrones shit was starting to go down. And to add to the picture, while all this was happening to the southeast, King Edward was making some serious moves of his own. As you might remember, at the end of the previous year, Edward had marched on Buckingham and acquired the fealty of Earl Thurcatel. 
And Buckingham really hasn't featured in our story thus far, which might make the month-long occupation to force submission of this otherwise quiet town seem out of place. But Buckingham was a crucial clue to what Edward's plan was behind his multi-year campaign. See, it wasn't about what Buckingham was. It was about what Buckingham was near. Buckingham was, and actually still is, located on the River Ouse, which was an important waterway that needed to be controlled. It also bordered Northampton, the traitorous shire that had joined together with Leicester to launch an attack upon Mercia years earlier. By consolidating in Buckingham and constructing a double burr on the river, Edward was extending his power into the very lands that the five boroughs clearly had their eye on. Now, before I recorded this episode today, Z pointed out that I've been referencing the five boroughs for weeks, but I haven't actually explained what they were. So the five boroughs go back to when about half of Mercia was ceded to the Danes, you know, back in the days of Alfred. Well, when that happened, a lot of towns obviously went with it. And in northeastern Mercia, there were five large towns that became dominant in the midland portions of the so-called Danelaw, and they were kind of ruled as semi-independent jarldoms. Now granted, they probably were sort of under the thumb of Jorvik, as Jorvik was significantly more powerful, but they don't appear to have been officially under its umbrella. Consequently, when the Jorvik Northumbrian army was crushed a few episodes back, that left the five boroughs in roughly the same position as East Anglia. They were Scandinavian-controlled territories in essentially hostile territory, and now they didn't have the protection of Big Brother to the north. So that's their rough political situation. Now, as for where the five boroughs were, well, they still exist today. They were Lincoln, which is to the north, Nottingham and Derby, which were towards the middle, and then Leicester and Stamford to the south. But as you probably picked up, much like how Jorvik sometimes held influence over the five boroughs, the five boroughs themselves sometimes held influence over the smaller Danish towns to their south, towns like Northampton and Bedford. So by pushing into Buckingham, Edward wasn't just establishing his hold on the Buckingham region. By constructing and occupying burrs there, he was also placing pressure upon the nearby settlements, which included... Northampton, and Bedford. And you can actually see the impact of this in the record, because after the construction of the Burrs, we don't just see the submission of Earl Thurcatel, we also see nobles out of Bedford and Northampton coming to submit to Edward. However, it wasn't all of the nobles of those regions. And we know this because early in the campaigning season of the following year, 915, the same year where Athelflaed was reinforcing her Welsh border, we see Edward gather his army and march past Buckingham and into Bedford. And the language that the Chronicle uses to describe this event is curious, so I'm going to read it to you directly. Quote, In this year, King Edward went with his army to Bedford before Martinmas and obtained the borough, and almost all the citizens who dwelt there before submitted to him. And he stayed there four weeks, and before he went away, ordered the borough on the south side of the river to be built, end quote. So to begin with, Edward and his army marched into Bedford to obtain it, which tells us that Bedford wasn't part of Edward's domain prior to this march, and that is very much in keeping with the traditional boundary of the Dane law. Edward's march was pressing into lands that had been lost during the reign of his father, Alfred. 
and were told that King Edward and his army stayed in Bedford for four weeks. And he didn't build for four weeks. According to the scribes, he just stayed there and obtained it. Am I the only one who thinks this sounds like an occupation? Actually, I'm not. In fact, some translators of the Chronicle use a different word for what happened in Bedford. They don't say that Edward obtained it. They're more direct. And they say that Edward conquered Bedford. And given the way that this is playing out, I have to say, that sounds about right. Something else that stands out from this entry is how it apparently needed to be conquered or obtained, even though nobles had offered their submission to Edward only months earlier. So that raises the question of who exactly were those nobles who submitted to him? Well, as we've talked about before, the Scandinavian leadership generally didn't just wipe out existing Anglo-Saxon social structures when they moved in. They incorporated them. And in the case of Bedford, it seems like much of the old social structure remained, because we're told that Edward got the submission of the citizens who dwelt there before. And the citizens who dwelt there before is a hell of a phrase. To begin with, citizens were probably only the people who owned land. Unferth the peasant probably wasn't asked his opinion. And when the scribes said who dwelt there before, they were likely referring to the people who lived there before the hostile takeover that was carried out by Scandinavia Incorporated. So my guess is that the nobles who came to Edward initially were probably members of the old ruling order, probably some of those same citizens who dwelt there before. And when they offered their submission, they might have also been asking him to march on the borough and reinstate them, which could explain why he marched on Bedford only months later. And we have seen things like that before. In fact, ousted nobles looking for reinstatement was part of what led to the Roman invasion of Britannia. So I get the sense that something like that, obviously in a much smaller scale, was happening here, especially since we're seeing evidence of a change in the ruling order when Bedford was obtained, or, you know, conquered. The language of the Chronicle makes it quite clear. Edward got the submission of the people who dwelt there before. The subtext being that the Scandinavian leadership were either dead or kicked out because they weren't submitting, apparently. And that isn't the only instance of Scandinavian rulers being removed. Earl Thurcatel, the Earl of Buckingham who submitted to Edward a year earlier, well, while this was all happening, he was packing his things up. And within a year, he would leave Britain for Francia, along with all of his men that were still willing to serve him. Now, the scribes point out that when he left Britain, he left in peace. But the fact remains that he was the only Scandinavian ruler that we've seen submit to Edward and his army thus far. And the next time he appeared in the record, he abandoned his lands in Buckingham and left Britain for good. And again, as peaceful as the Chronicle can make it sound, if you look a little closer, this appears aggressive. People were losing their lands and titles as a result of Edward's maneuvers. So I find it hard to believe that this was all just placid marching around and construction. But at the end of it, Bedford was obtained. And now Edward had an outpost very close to Northampton and Leicester. And if the Burrs of Buckingham made some of the nobles of Northampton worried enough to come and offer their submission... I imagine that Bedford only served to reinforce that anxiety. Then, after Bedford was obtained, as King Edward and his army rode out, he ordered the people of the borough to construct a burr on the south side of the River Ouse. Now, I'm not sure why he didn't build it himself, 
nor do I know why he didn't have it constructed during the month that he was there. But again, it's hard to believe that something more wasn't going on here. The whole situation sounds like there might have been open hostilities. Like maybe the citizens who had not dwelt there before were putting up a fight and trying to regain the borough. But however it played out, Bedford was just the latest instance in the steady drumbeat of what looks like border disputes or outright fights carried out by Edward and Athelflaed. And the end result has been the expansion of Mercia and Wessex. After Bedford, Edward and his army marched back home. But the fortification along the Ouse and the defenses that he and Athelflaed had constructed all along the edge of the five boroughs had secured the northern border for now. And that left the king free to focus on the other front in his war, East Anglia. The borough with him brought large portions of Essex under Edward's control, but it was also a frontier fortress. Because it was standing alone, that left it vulnerable to assault. After all, it could be easily isolated. So early in the campaigning season of 916, fresh off his victory at Bedford, which further drove a wedge between the lands of East Anglia and the five boroughs, King Edward and his army seized the opportunity and rode out to Malden and established a burr there, thus further pressing against the East Anglian borders. But the big event of 916 didn't happen in the East. It didn't happen with King Edward and his army. Instead, it took place far to the West, in Wales, in the kingdom of Brachenog, which sat in large part where modern-day Brecon, Wales is. While Brachenog has been a subject kingdom to their Anglo-Saxon neighbors since the days of Alfred, it hasn't been truly independent for a long time. But as we talked about at the opening of this episode, the political balance of Wales appeared to be tipping in the early part of the 10th century. When Alfred died, their allegiance appears to have softened. Edward doesn't appear to have had the same initial sway with the Welsh that his father did. And that initially gave Athelred and Athelflaed an opportunity to expand their influence in the region. But a lot had changed since those early years. Athelred had died, and so had King Anarod of Gwynedd. And now Wales was witness to a host of new rulers. Rulers who might not have felt the same degree of fealty towards the Mercians that Anarod had. And that might have been why we were seeing Athelflaed militarizing her border with Poes, even though a bare reading of the events in the Chronicle gives the impression that Wales wasn't the biggest threat facing her rule. It looked like that was the five boroughs. But the truth is that Wales was starting to come apart at the seams. Mercian and West Saxon control over their western neighbors was built largely upon agreements between Alfred and the various Welsh kings, the chief among them being the sons of Rodri. But the sons of Rodri were now all dead. And while they did leave behind heirs it wasn't a guarantee that the grandsons of Rodri would feel any degree of fealty towards the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms to the east. And the territories that they ruled over were vast. And actually, they've been growing throughout Edward's reign. And that meant that this powerful Welsh dynasty was becoming even more powerful. For example, back in 904 or 905, which was early in Edward's reign, King Cadell ab Rodri who at the time was mostly ruling over just Ceredigion, invaded the kingdom of David and conquered it with the help of his son, Huolthá. He then combined it with his own territory and created a new kingdom that was far larger and pretty much covered all of the southwest, 
He called it the Hybarth. And the success of this invasion and the fact that Cadell's brother Anarod was ruling over Gwynedd meant that most of Wales was now under the direct rule of the Sons of Rodri. And while that wasn't necessarily the end of the world for the Anglo-Saxons, since the Sons of Rodri had shown that they were willing to come under the West Saxon umbrella, well, that wasn't guaranteed to stick around. Because as great as the Sons of Rodri were, they weren't immortal. And by 911, King Cadell died. And then by about 916, King Anarod had followed him. The thrones that they held had gone to their heirs. And that rapid series of successions meant that the future of Wales was a bit uncertain, especially for a Mercian leadership that wanted to maintain their dominant role. So that's the lay of the land. And into the middle of that, we read of a Mercian abbot, Abbot Egbert, going to a place called Brechimera, which is located roughly at modern-day Flangors Lake. So he was going to the kingdom of Brechenog, and Abbot Egbert didn't go alone. He had a group of companions with him, and they all made the journey together to the southern Welsh kingdom. Now, we don't know who sent him, and we don't know why he was there. Maybe he was just ministering to the people. Maybe he was sent as an ambassador. Maybe he was working on Athelflaed's behalf to retain or reestablish mercy and dominance over the southern Welsh. The purpose of his journey is unknown, but... I suspect it was linked to political instability within Wales. In fact, I think his visit was a sign that the South was on the verge of outright rebellion against Mercia. And here's why I think that. On January 16th of 916, on the festival of St. Kyriakus the Martyr, Abbot Egbert and all of his companions were murdered. The Chronicle makes note that Abbot Egbert and his companions were innocent something that usually isn't mentioned when you talk about murder. And that little detail gives the impression that this wasn't just some random killing. If the issue of innocence came up, then this sounds much more like an execution. An act of war. Three days later, word of the abbot's death reached Athelflaed. Her response is particularly telling. Even though Lester was a clear and present threat, Lady Athelflaed gathered her furred and marched west. Lester would have to wait. Mercia was now at war with the Southern Welsh. I am and I am bone if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, pretty much everything. And you can get links to all those communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. 